Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome to Health and Safety Conversations. Here's your host, Tom Bourne. Hi, and welcome to Health and Safety Conversations. I'm your host, Tom Bourne, and with me today is the marvellous Peter Gould. How are you, Peter? Great, Tom. How are you today? Oh, perfect, mate. Just finished just finished the regular year yesterday, and we had a lovely staff Christmas party, but it's about I don't know, 32 degrees in Perth. What's it like over your end of the world? Oh, look, it's pretty warm today. I think we've, we've cracked 30 today and a uh, bit of an afternoon storm starting to form up, so anything could happen this yes. evening. So. You still get still get those storms from about 4 p.m. that, you know, could be hail, could be heavy rain, and then it's just stinking humidity? Yeah, oh, look, uh, it, it takes the edge off the day and uh, makes the evenings interesting, that's for sure. Yeah, uh, we, we haven't had a good hailstorm for a little while, but uh, look, it's definitely storm season. So we'll uh, we'll see what brings uh, as the year starts to progress further. Beautiful, Peter. You've had an interesting career today. Um, lots of roles that have involved either training or educating people. Lots of safety roles, obviously, and more importantly, lots of volunteer roles. Um, the the fact that you've done so much volunteering tells me you're probably just a decent human being giving back to the community all right (laughs) but apart from the compliments for those who aren't familiar with what you've done in your career up to date can you just let them know a little bit about you and what you're currently doing sure tom um so i uh sort of had my first big break in health and safety uh with hastings deering who are the caterpillar people up here in, in queensland in the northern territory and uh I was a health and safety advisor there and uh, was their first male nurse they'd ever had. Uh, so that made it a bit of a, a great opportunity. Everyone wanted to come and meet me and uh, I think that was to check out what the go was and uh, spent some good years there with them and looking after diesel fitters and all the other wonderful things that go on at Caterpillar de- uh, dealerships and uh, then I had an opportunity to head over to Department of Emergency Services where I had sort of a 
training coordinator role there and we looked after the health and safety piece as well. Uh, so my side of the business was counter disaster and rescue services. So we had uh, the rescue helicopters, we had all the emergency management people and uh, had the great opportunity to work with all the SES volunteers in Queensland as well. So uh, that, that was some good years and then uh, had an opportunity to uh, take us a comment over to Surf Lifesaving and uh, help them out with their, uh, their academy and setting all that up over there for both uh, internal training for all the lifesavers and, uh, and setting up a bit of a um, sort of a commercial arm for them as well because they had lots of good things to share in that space. Uh, that was uh, sort of a three-year opportunity and then was sort of heading back to the department and uh, was sort of thought, oh, maybe I'll try something new. So I uh, headed over to uh, Redland City Council, which is one of our local governments uh, up here out in the eastern suburbs of Brisbane, and um, then 14 years disappeared. I'm not sure where they all went, but uh, had a great opportunity there to do some really good work in a, in a good organisation that was... Uh, really trying to make uh, things better every day, uh, which was really refreshing. And the last couple of years, I uh, had an opportunity to go and help out other councils and I worked for local government work care, which is sort of the self-insurer uh, up here in Queensland for 65 of the councils. And uh, yeah, headed up a little um, internal health and safety support unit there and uh, sort of uh, just recently had an opportunity to go over to Urban Utilities, which is, uh, Southeast Queensland sort of uh, water and waste uh, sort of provider, uh, and uh, very happy to be doing a health, safety, and well-being partnering role there, and looking after all their service delivery people. And uh, so I've got that you know new job feel at the moment, and uh, getting my uh, teeth into some really good operational safety stuff there, which has been really refreshing. So yeah, it's been my uh, professional journey, but uh, yeah, very much connected to the community and uh, have probably sort of uh, had great opportunities to uh, overall did about 25 years with Queensland State Emergency Service in a volunteer role and headed up the Redland City unit. Uh, we had about 300 volunteers down there and, uh, you know, 24-7 for all those years and uh, you never know what was going to come and we obviously had the, the Brisbane floods and all those sort of things that we uh, assisted with but uh, they were all great times but... Uh, it was funny, uh, I think when I'd had enough, I'd had enough and uh, my girls were a bit older. I've got a 21-year-old and a 17-year-old and I'd, I hadn't really ever thought about the impact of them night after night going, oh, uh, I wonder where Dad's going tonight and will he be okay? And they didn't really tell me that till they sort of into their, uh, into their adult years but uh, that sort of stuck with me and I thought, oh, it's uh, probably a good opportunity not to uh, push the envelope too hard too further. So... Um, but yeah, look, I love the community and certainly anything I can do to help and support it and, and work with it. And uh, these days I've sort of gone the full circle. I've probably learned how to volunteer as, as, a, as a scout and uh, have sort of my girls got involved in scouting as they've sort of grown up and uh, I got sort of sucked back in as the parent on the barbecue and then, um, you know, people talk to you and they find out what you can do and next thing you know, you're a leader and next thing you know, um, I'm in charge of all the adventurous activities uh, that Scouts Queensland does in Queensland and uh, really, really pleased to be um, helping out, uh, getting programs there for all the kids to participate in. So, yeah, so safety's always got a, a bit of a flair and everything that I do, uh, but I think it's just having that good riskometer where you can understand where those points are and where that fits in and sort of how it uh, sort of runs out. So a lot of people go, oh, you're a safety guy. They automatically think you want to wrap people in bubble wrap and... Um, 
you know, sort of slow everything down. But uh, I think uh, from the adventurous sort of side, we were able to find that sweet point where people could feel challenged and uh, and not be in an unsafe situation. So uh, I enjoy that challenge. So. Yeah, excellent. Um, really do appreciate, and I can say this only, honestly, uh, people like yourself who give back to the communities um, rather than, you know, just take and take and take. So um, well done. <laughs> but um, all right, uh, talk to me about the SES. I I did a little bit of, um, I came across the SES when I worked for lovely Brisbane City Council there for a few years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, ar- around the times of the big flood, wasn't that an yep. interesting time? Um, it certainly was. <laughs> and for you in particular, coordinating the emergency parts, uh, it must have been, it must have been hell of a stressful time because those were the situations we had people in peril. Let's be honest, we had people who lost houses, lost lives, um, and. To most of us, it seemed unprecedented. We, we, well, for me, for example, I'd heard of the 1974 floods, <laughs> and but that was about it. I'd I'd grown up my teen years in in Lismore, where it basically flooded, you know, twice a year minorly until yep. a couple of years ago. Um, but to see the Brisbane floods and how quickly the water came up, um, it, it, it shocked me. Um, how important for someone who's actually been on the inside, how important is the SES in times of emergency? Oh, look, I think a lot of people don't think about the SES until they need them. And uh, they're very much uh, just at that core of community. Uh, anybody that uh, you know needs some assistance, they generally look towards the SES. Uh, and I think that makes people proud that they can put that input back into things. Uh, you know, when, when a loved one's lost, um, you know, never had a problem. Everybody was happy to drop what they were doing, put on their orange carrot suit and um, head to wherever the police needed us to be and, and do what they needed to do. And, uh, you know, not all of those events end well, but uh, most of them, uh, you hope you can get a positive event. Um, and I think... The floods was, uh, for Brisbane, a, a big wake-up call. I think we'd had nothing really go that wrong for that long. Uh, the biggest event I'd been involved in before that was the Gap Storm, which was basically this huge hailstorm that wiped out a couple of suburbs and, um, you know, the rest of Brisbane just got on with life. But uh, now that we're getting those bigger events and, uh, and flooding starting to certainly move forward, um, it, it was for us uh, and our families uh, five months. Uh, from the day the flood kicked in to when everything was sort of done and dusted because uh, once the uh, flooding emergency had sort of subsided, uh, we started doing tasks for, uh, you know, going into waterways and and just making sure that, you know, obviously a lot of people heard about Grantham and the big washout that that had. Uh, Well, I've never seen so many pumpkins in the Brisbane River in my life. There was millions of them. And uh, some bright spark decided that we needed to go and check what every one of those pumpkins were, make sure there was nothing else in between them. And uh, driving up and down the Brisbane River with a boat hook and pushing on pumpkins with a couple of other guys for a couple of days, that really just reminds you what summer in Queensland was like, (laughs) the stench of rotting pumpkin uh, and all those other sort of things that went on. But uh, it was a job that needed to be done. And 
I think the proudest thing I all the volunteers I've always worked with is no matter what it is, um, you know, they're happy to give it a go. But uh, the catch cry is always, oh, we're just really good at hurry up and wait because uh, everyone's go, go, go and then stop and then go, go, go and then stop. Uh, so I think you've got to have a little bit of patience and a little bit of uh, opportunity just to reflect on what we are trying to do when we are trying to do it. But uh, no, I wouldn't, uh, wouldn't give up any of those years. Met some wonderful people, um, helped out in some times where you didn't think of it at the time, but when people come and just thank you later, you just you just melt. You just never thought about it in that regard. So, yeah, but uh, I uh, had some, you know, memorable things there. Uh, driving around the Fairfield, which you would know quite well, uh, where the RSPCA building is, that, that set of traffic lights there. I've got a nice photograph of me touching the top of the uh, traffic light where we are wearing a boat and um, I didn't have to stretch too far and you go and have a look at that today and that's probably a good, you know, 12 metres of water sitting at that one intersection at that time. Yeah, uh, yeah. We were using the bus stops uh, in the suburbs to sort of find where the streets were and uh, came around a corner in one of the boats and the boat came to an abrupt stop. But um, I think we didn't realise that we'd actually parked the boat on top of a parked car. So... Uh, Someone came back to their car at the front of their house with quite a large uh, V-shaped dent down the middle of the roof. But uh, thank God we uh, didn't. Uh, we weren't able to leave a note, but we probably should have. But uh, anyway, the car was gone by the time we'd got there. So uh, yeah, just the little things that you never really think of uh, that sort of happen at the time. And uh, yeah, look, um, under undervalued, underestimated what the capability of um, government could never afford to pay for what the SES gives back. Uh, and I think it's sad sometimes that, you know, some of the budgets in the emergency services space, it's uh, normally the SES isn't that uh, big funded area. So they really just get on with and, and cope with the support they can get from their local councils who actually fund most of the SES uh, operations. Um, state government tags it and owns it and manages it, but uh, it's the councils that provide the vehicles and the buildings and the the other things that go with it. So it's a really nice way of showing how community can come together and, and really make a difference. But um, yeah, we, we need more volunteers. Um, volunteering is hard um, and it takes a lot of time for people, but uh, certainly in the world that we're moving into and the world we live in now, uh, anybody that's got a little bit of time um, and they've got an interest in that space would be very welcome to you know, come and join the ranks and, uh, and really have a, a great opportunity that you wouldn't get to get do elsewhere. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, cyclone season. It's yes. not, it not only comes for Queensland, believe it or not, it comes for WA too. Um, hard to believe, right? But uh, just yep. as just as just as it does for you guys, it comes for us. And it's it's we're sort of heading towards cyclone season. Um, couple of questions about that. First one, um, just your personal belief. Do you, do you, do you believe that cyclones are, are getting heading further south in Queensland over the last maybe 10 years? Oh, look, I, I think when you look at the history, uh, the cyclones have always been around and we've often had our worst weather events uh, in June and July. Okay. And uh, they just get tagged as an East Coast low. But uh, the, the East Coast lows that I've worked on have been much angrier than the quick cyclone that comes in does its business and, and sort of moves on. You know, we've had bad, bad weather for, you know, three or four days worth of impact. So uh, I think people have short memories. They, they remember bits and pieces about different events, but, uh, you know, certainly uh, that whole severe weather impact stuff is 
what the bigger, bigger problem is, I think, overall. But, um, yeah, I was involved with the RC and a few of the other bigger ones and um, and certainly some of the stuff that came through in the southeast corner. Um, you know, people think of tropical, you know, weather and the tropical cyclone, but, uh, yeah, they hit hard and they do a lot of damage and, uh, and but move on pretty quickly. But uh, it's more that east coast low that sits off the coast and just pummels places that uh, I think is much more of a concern than the the true spinning eye coming across and uh, I think Darwin's on alert today. <laughs> so uh, they might have another pre-Christmas event for themselves. So uh, interesting times. Hopefully not a, not, not a situation like Tracy in 1975, was it? 1975? Yep. I was, I was yep. only a young spring chicken then apparently. But in here. Oh, you're not that old Tom, come on. You'd be surprised. All right. <laughs> Any tips for people preparing for storm season so that uh, your friends, the SES, aren't required as much? Gutters. If people just clean out their gutters and manage their gutters effectively, 75% um, of the SES's work during a storm event would disappear. Uh, very unusual for us to have briefing materials move. Um, you know, occasionally tiles loose and things like that. But the number of jobs that we go to and the gutters have not been managed, the water's flowing in and the ceiling's now buggered and um, some poor kids' bedroom's now full of plasterboard and, you know, all that sort of stuff. They're the ones you just go, this is so preventable. Uh, if people can just, you know, make that occasional six-month task, you know, get your gutters, clean them out and just make sure that that piece is fitted. Uh, so yeah, I'm a, I'm a big gutter advocate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I hadn't thought of it until just a few moments ago. Um, I guess it's also fire season too, and um, yep, not so much that I can remember in southeast Queensland, particularly having fires that are out of control. But in other parts of Australia, how important is it for people who are in those areas and they should know what if they are in those areas where wildfires are possible um, mm. to actually plan and, and to have things like in place so that they are plan and a time when they actually are going to leave and how they're going to leave? Yeah, look, uh, I think there's a lot of people have had very poor experiences in regards to what happens with fire in their local areas. I think we're getting better at, uh, you know, sort of being prepared for that. There's a lot more shelter in place type information for people so they can make those decisions around whether they stay or whether they go. Um, but it's the little things that I think um, managing people's pets, like if you haven't got that ability to support and carry your pet, um, you then go to an evac centre or somewhere else and then suddenly that's another sort of impost that goes on the people trying to help those things out. So I think if people, you know, most people have got that idea now, you've got an emergency kit, but, you know, it should be more about your whole family. So, you know, the cocky in the cage and the cat in the car carrier and all those other sort of things, you've, you've really got to have that, how's our plan to evacuate, going to work our way through and, and people just need to be prepared for that. Um, my kids still laugh, but I gave them all a box each and I said, whatever you really want to keep needs to go in that box and you need to get that in that box quickly. Uh, you know, we live in a fairly you know, bushfire-prone area in, in southeast Queensland and it was sort of that opportunity to start to go, well, what's important and what's not? 
And, uh, you know, we were very much about uh, we weren't going to stay, we're going to go, and then whatever's left is what you come back to. But, uh, you know, just the security of your family and the other things that are important to you is really that pre-planning step that we have to take. But, um, yeah, it's uh, it's challenging. And uh, some of the big fires that we've seen in New South Wales and Victoria in the last few years, uh, I mean, they are the most prepared states in the world uh, for what they have to deal with. And it just shows you there was just learnings every time. But um, I think our fires are going to get worse and they're going to get stronger and more often. And we just got to think more about how we can mitigate that. And, you know, people do need to put more emphasis into protecting their own homes, just so that even if they're not in them, they still, uh, you know, have fire suppression systems for some areas and things like that, just so that the, the house doesn't become an impost on the poor responding, you know, emergency services. So. I'm going to ask a question, and, and, and probably in Western Australia, any people in Western Australia might find this a, a, a little controversial. We have a lot of traditional burns here um, that happen every year. And if you go around there, particularly northern parts of Western Australia, uh, any time from about August until January, you'll you'll have large tracts of land burning, and it's it's based on either traditional burning to to mitigate the build up of materials, or fire management. Basically, it's kind of a bit same same. Do uh, in your opinion, because you you have a fair idea, do those pre burns actually help? Um, from a fuel reduction point of view, absolutely. Uh, when I was at Redland City Council, we had our own fire management team. And uh, and obviously, under Queensland legislation, whatever natural areas you own, you're responsible for the fire management of them. Uh, but working with the guys each year, just finding those windows of opportunity where they could do some hazard reduction type burns, uh, you know, we would cover less than 10% of the city's areas under management in any one year. So uh, a lot of science goes into working out um, the best places to and when to do it and patch burning and a number of other bits and pieces. But, uh, yeah, we also always used to have people very inconvenienced by that work, um, you know, and, and obviously when you put a lot of effort into getting a burn underway, particularly somewhere, um, you know, conditions change rapidly and all that gets dried up and you move on to the next thing. But, uh I was heavily involved in a number of the big fires over on North Stradbroke Island and I know that any mitigation work over there that we do do um, saves the environment from the impact that it does have but also um, does save lives in those little coastal townships which are pretty much if, if it's going to come like a steam train, it'll go through like a steam train. So anything yeah. we can do to slow it down is helpful. Yeah, there seems to be a, a bit of a conversation seems to be striking up in some of the areas over here about uh, the need for it. And it's just like, well, I, I, I don't know enough about it. And so I don't make an informed discussion about it. But if, if the experts are saying it's required in order to, let's be honest, save property and save lives, then let's do it. You know, just let's do it. Yeah. Like we all want to live in the nice, beautiful natural environment areas. So um, as soon as we add people and places into that, then uh, just the traditional big fire going through and just mitigating everything is uh, it's not going to function well. So we've got to have some human interaction within that, you would, you would have to assume. But uh, West Australia is a big place. So, uh, you know, but I mean, I, 
we have uh, burns in Queensland that we'll just leave, let go, particularly in Western areas, just monitor, um, and they'll burn for three or four, five, ten, you know, days, and then uh, that's probably the best impact. But as soon as you've got people involved and places involved, that's the uh, prickly part. Yeah. All right. You spend a lot of time working for Redland City Council and working with local councils. Hmm. What are some, because I, I, I'd assume there's lots of varied, but what are some other safety challenges local councils typically have? Yeah. Um, well, I think from a safety professional point of view, they're just great places to build your skill set. Um, the average council uh, probably has in excess of 185 different businesses that they actually operate within that organisation. Um, and they're things that people... Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odour control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Yeah, you know, most people know rates, roads, and rubbish, uh, <laughs> which is complicated as it is, but uh, you know, libraries and, and theatres and swimming pools and uh, childcare, aged care, um, got some of our regional centres that unless they ran the post office, the store and the service station, those services wouldn't be there. So every council's got a very different business uh, operational profile and what flows down from that's obviously that gives them a hazard sort of uh, mix that they do need to be prepared for. Um, and then obviously making safety systems and having the controls in place to deal with that Enormity of business, uh, I think, is the biggest challenge. Uh, and, and it's not easy, um, particularly about where do you put the resourcing and um, who do you spend the most time with. And I often find that uh, a lot of focus in councils often goes into outside workers because they're outside doing work. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the days of uh, where we've obviously got, you know, psychological health and safety matters becoming more and more prevalent, um, you know, I think back to the poor people who are on rates collection have to ring people every day and say, I need you to pay some money. And uh, a day wouldn't go by where they haven't had a difficult conversation with with a resident that uh, just says, look, I haven't got any money and, uh, you know, I probably just need to take my own life. And, you know, just that impact stuff of they then hang up. Well, that sits with those officers um, and they take that home. So uh, I think some of the areas where people traditionally see it as, oh, they're just inside office workers um, is often where the the stronger um, amount of supports were needed for them to, you know, be able to balance out the health, safety and wellbeing impacts of the work that they do. So, um, but yeah, I love councils, you know, quarries and roadworks and um, I love a good waste transfer station, you know, where you've got 
five or six different contractors all trying to interact and do different pieces and the, the council holds the obligation and got obviously public open space. Uh, people want to come in and it's God-given Australian right to put your rubbish where you want to put it. So how dare one of those little council people come over and say, would you mind putting your green waste over in the green waste pile? Uh, so we definitely see a lot more aggression in the community mm. and uh, I think that's the bigger impact. Uh, council's work is never uh, behind a fence. Uh, it's always out publicly facing in, in many, many different forms. And, uh, you know, the, the interaction with the community is probably the biggest thing that they do need to consider of what that really does look like. And, uh, you know, I think of two local laws officers that got sent to do a, an illegal rifle range inspection on uh, a property uh, and they thought, hmm, might have to think about how we would do this. Uh, you know, but anything can come in and anything can get uh, put in somebody's lap and, and obviously having that good um, riskometer for every officer in a council environment is really, really quite crucial. Is, is the training that's required for dealing with the public have to be extensive? Uh, look, I think in the in the past, we, we've tried to always use de-escalation type techniques, but uh, I think more and more as we see in healthcare and other settings, uh, for certain officers in certain roles, um, being able to know how to physically uh, protect themselves when they're being assaulted and things like that, is certainly a bigger part of their role. And, um, you know, we obviously take into account that uh, some of those are really, really exposed roles. Like uh, recently, very sad situation in Queensland, we had a, a contracted meter reader, you know, attacked by some dogs, you know. So uh, I used to work with our animal management guys and they'd go and arrest dogs that no one else wanted to talk to. So... Um, you know, they, they had techniques and they had um, good training and they obviously had things like um, citronella spray and, uh, you know, physically they had bite sticks that they could use to manage the dogs and stuff like that. But uh, if it all doesn't work, um, it can be pretty uh, pretty messy pretty fast and uh, they're big and heavy animals too, you know. So they're trying to manhandle one into the back of a vehicle. Uh, we had to do a lot of work on making sure that they were safe environments for those guys too to operate. Yeah, yeah. Look, from my experience, one of the biggest problems I ever found with animals wasn't the animals itself. If if you had an animal that you had to collect off someone, it was you were going to have more trouble with the owner not trying to give up or surrender their animal to you. And um, mm, some interesting situations there. Hey, uh, listen, while, yeah. I've got, <laughs> while I've got you on the subject about regulatory officers, etc. What's your view on on, uh, on on body cams for those lovely people that have to go and interact with the public in, I don't know, real frontline roles that can, you know, lead to confrontation easily? Look, uh, I think body cams are useful if someone else on the other end is watching. Uh, so I see a lot of investment put into putting the cameras on the offices and, and everything else, but all they're going to do is record history unless someone else is actually physically at the job with them on the other end of a screen, just monitoring what's going on and then providing that support. Yeah. Um, yeah. We've got a lot more um, aggressive 
sort of approach from people with them taking videos of our own sort of council workers. So, uh, you know, it's often a bit of tit for tat. Uh, I've seen a lot of live feed stuff now go on where, you know, poor local laws officers, the classic one I remember was a, a couple who had uh, covered their whole footpath area in a vegetable garden. Uh, seemed fairly, you know, uh, was that really a big deal? But the reality was that the public had to go out on the road and <laughs> to be able to go around their property. So um, poor officer went out there and that was all live streamed straight to the local uh, suburb Facebook page and, and all those challenges. And um, some of our guys live in fairly small communities. So uh, people find out where you live and next thing you know, your kids are in danger and all the rest of it. And so it's quite complicated from that point of view. But I think um, recording devices are good as long as uh, there's some follow-up around other than just having it created for history, um, what sort of powers do we have around them? Uh, you know, even try and get someone banned from a library who's aggressive to librarians and, yeah. you know, that that's uh, there's a big process that goes in behind that and I've been part of that in the past as well. It's not as easy as people think. So. No, no. All right, urban utilities. Lovely urban utilities. Managing the water supply for southeast Queensland, is that, that correct? That's it, yeah. Um, uh, 1.6 million households, I think, is urban utilities footprint. So Brisbane City, Ipswich City, uh, Lockyer Valley, uh, Scenic Rim and Somerset area. So uh, a big patch. Yeah, uh, huge. So providing um, an A-grade food product to the door. And um, taking away everybody's um, flushable waste and uh, dealing with that elsewhere at the other end of the pipe. So, uh, yeah. does that include Toowoomba? Because I just uh, Toowoomba's just outside, so they've got their okay. own uh, water business up on the up on the hill. So, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I, w I was I was there in lovely Queensland when they put those uh, pumping stations and the connecting pipes to the dams. You know, when we were actually in the middle of a drought and the water supply was go yeah, going down, 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 down. Um, from your point of view, uh, are they still useful? Are they used? Because so we've got the uh, Southeast Queensland Water Grid. Yep. Uh, that involves some of the desalination plants that were established that are easily able to be turned on and um, can obviously help in that regards, but. I think having the network now that uh, SEQ Water, um, they're the bulk water authority, so their job is to make sure that they move the water around the different um, holding areas and have the ability to pump up into some and pump away from others. Um, so certainly water security um, has shifted dramatically in the last 10 years, but uh, yeah, SEQ Water's obviously got its challenges and um, you know the Wyvernhoe Dam got a lot of um, bad press over the whole uh, flooding, exp you know, different scenarios that have occurred in time. So, yeah, um, water storage and water management uh, for the bulk water people is certainly a big challenge. And, um, yeah, the old desal plant that's off the Gold Coast there, it sits out like its own little island. But uh, a couple of guys are there um, just keeping it all ticking over, ready for if the big switch needs to be done, that it can be. But uh, there's a couple of other desal uh, operations in the sort of northern part of the city as well. But, um, yeah, it's a, it's all the stuff that happens that no one thinks about, I think, is the, is the big challenge. Yeah, we take we take it all for granted until it's not there or it doesn't work. Yes. Um, and then there's uh, um, a lot of kerfuffle. 
Um, recently on lovely LinkedIn, because I do follow you on LinkedIn and you, you are fairly, <laughs> fairly prominent. You, you put up some highly intelligent and thought provoking posts. Yeah. You, you, you put up that you uh, toured good old luggage point, luggage point. I remember it well. Yeah. Uh, just off the, just off the Qantas big hangar there, just to the side. That's it. I remember, I remember being down that way uh, several times and, seeing people just down from one of your facilities, shall we say. And um, <laughs> and there were people fishing just down the river from there. And they were they weren't just catch and release. They were taking them home, the fish home to eat. And you could understand what the lots of we'll say nutrients in the water just downstream. <laughs> yep. uh, and that therefore the fish are, are pretty happy to be in that environment. Um, from your point of view, is that safe for them to eat those? Now, Tom, we need to speak officially, all right? <laughs> so all sewage treatment operations are operated in line with the environmental protection requirements of their licence. It's only when we have a really, really wet summer that we get problems. Yeah. So yeah. the average day, most things, it all goes well, but... Um, it's occasionally we have some bubbling crude, let's call it that, yes. uh, that's going to move through the system that's just impossible to manage. Uh, so, I mean, like Luggage Point, uh, which is now what we refer to as a resource recovery centre. We feel that's a little bit more subtle. Uh, but the um, sewage pumping station at Eagle Farm that feeds into uh, the actual Luggage Point, 165 million litres a day goes through there. So it's about 80% of the uh, sort of greater Brisbane area's uh, sewerage from within Brisbane city's limits. So that's a lot of stuff. That is a lot of <laughs> so, stuff. Uh, lug luggage point, I think, would be the biggest uh, poo farm on the planet. Uh, it, it's a massive, uh, big process. Uh, obviously, safety, uh, really interesting sort of uh, outcome of how it all works. And there's a number of different strategies within there. But um, look, I probably personally wouldn't have um, fish caught from the Brisbane River for, for various reasons, not necessarily just um, luggage point compat, but uh, I do know they get a lot of bull sharks there. Yes. So uh, the, the, the nutrients obviously drive a big food chain piece that, uh, you know, does let you go all the way through to the, um, the bigger carnivores in that system. So, uh, yeah, it's... Uh, you're helping the circle of life, aren't you? Really? Oh, definitely, definitely, <laughs> definitely circle of life. Yeah, you know. Oh dear. Well, how's this? How's this for? Uh, they also had a PFAS problem, which had nothing to do with luggage point. It might have had something to do with the airport being nearby. But I believe that's all cleaned up now. Maybe. Who knows? Yeah. Well. <laughs> yeah. Time will tell, won't it? That, time will that, tell. That, that, that's right. Um, yeah, one of the big things I also came out in the floods was obviously we, like a lot of infrastructure, went underwater and there was those waste products en masse got un, were untreated and they ended up in the river and then in the bay. And um, obviously that's not the, the best thing. Is, is there any way that you can possibly manage that in the next sort of flooding events that happen? 
Well, look, I think um, a lot of work's gone into making sure that the, the system, as we would refer to it, um, is as robust as we can. Uh, the biggest issue, I think, is the average little suburban pump station. Mm. A lot of people forget that the only thing we want them to flush is actually, you know, the, the toilet tissue that is, is supplied. Yep. Um, having worked around this space with councils and obviously now with urban, um, really sad at the end of uh, grand final season, a lot of people uh, will flush their jerseys uh, if, if they haven't um, had a successful season. So we often see those go through. Um, and what we see going through the screening of a pump station and obviously working into a sewage treatment plant would absolutely mind boggle mm -hmm. <laughs> what mm -hmm. has made it through. So uh, generally anything that will block a pump is where we have a problem. Yep. Uh, so if people can help us by uh, ensuring that pumps don't block uh, with the different things that they're flushing, uh, we've got a better chance of then making sure that the amount of water that needs to go through can go through. So certainly the system's got capacity, uh, but as we know, um, power is the problem. So during yes. floods, et cetera, if we can't get power to the system, uh, we've obviously got residual uh, sort of power supplies where we can, but uh, that's the bigger problem, I think. As soon as we've lost power, then we've lost capability to pump. So yeah. Yeah. that's probably the bigger issue. Uh, you wouldn't believe it, but at that Shortly after the floods and that, as I said, I was with Brisbane City Council at the time. One of the jobs we were tasked to do was to actually go around the eastern suburb beaches. Yep. Uh, and basically tell people that they they shouldn't be walking or taking their kids on the beach or in the water because of the health concerns. And uh, yeah, we not surprisingly had some resistance from people who thought it was perfectly good to take babies in nappies in that sort of water and it was just like what is wrong with you people <clears throat> i find people fascinating tom oh. <laughs> <laughs> i think we both do yes uh, it's always a challenge sometimes well at least sometimes it's a challenge yeah. all right just from a personal point of view who manages the stormwater drains in southeast queensland is it you guys or is it the council's no stormwater is a council obligation so uh, any of the street-based water um, is all in their remit and obviously that takes through to a number of uh, grid systems and different infrastructure that's there but uh, yeah stormwater is all a council gig and a, and a big challenge too um, a lot of uh, interesting safety conversations in regards to being able to clear stormwater issues and things like that when when it's running hot so um, had uh, many an interesting swift water conversation uh, around the top of a stormwater infrastructure that's for sure so yeah all right, uh, a couple of last questions and then we'll finish up because we're running low on time. Um, psychological safety, a big challenge for health and safety professionals at this time? Oh, look, uh, it's a great time to be alive in the profession, uh, but I think it's also quite a challenge in regards to lots of our traditional practitioners are finding this space very challenging. Uh, physical safety, you can see the hazard, you can devise what the um, hazard needs to have for control, but um, the whole psychosocial hazard space is certainly a challenge for people. But I, I think in the next few years, we'll see a new cohort of um, health and safety professionals and practitioners that will come through that will, you know, keenly focus on that space, which I think is probably what we need to do right now. 
because uh, just trying to get the average health and safety advisor to pick up a whole different skill set and a space where, okay, go and investigate that psychological health and safety hazard. Um, there could be 15 elements within there that could all be interacting, but you'll be okay. Go and see if you can work it out and see what you come up with and uh, all the best and I look forward to your report. Uh, yeah, look, the, the new regulations and uh, the code in Queensland is going to kick in on the 1st of April. I don't know whether that was ironically picked for then or what, but uh, the reality is um, everyone's sort of, it's been, it's always been there. It's, it's a new framing of it. But uh, I think it's a lot of work for organisations now to work out how they're going to successfully uh, manage that space. But uh, I think uh, for my kids moving into the workforce, you know, in, in, in deeper roles in the future, um, I think they'll be much better places to work if we can get all this stuff right. So uh, I, I look forward to the bigger picture, not probably the narrow little ticker box picture that a lot of people are taking at the moment. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I think it will be better for our kids and their kids in the future. Um, for those who don't know, Queensland um, is one of those lovely states where approved codes of practice are actually legally enforceable um, mm. as opposed to some other states. So when codes of practice become effect, come into effect, uh, yeah, legislative power basically shifts a little bit. Um, hmm. Yeah, oh, just on that, just I'm curious. Uh, do you think that having a psychology degree in any sort of large safety team to have someone with a psychology degree moving into the future would actually be a valuable thing? Um, got a varied view on that one. Um, we need as many of our clinical psychologists as we can out there actually helping people that are really unwell. Yep. So I don't think we should be trying to draw upon a, something that's already in shortage. Yep. Um, organisational psychologists certainly have a lot of uh, opportunity to make impact on organisational systems and approaches and working with leaders, etc. cetera. Um, so I, I actually think that we do need the psychology profession to provide a role in the space, but I don't think they are the be-all and end-all of what we need to do. I think we need to entrust that, um, you know, health and safety people are good at looking at hazards and looking at risk. So if we can educate them and train them uh, to understand the space or get people that are really keen to make it a bit of a specialty area, I think um, a multidisciplinary approach is probably going to give us a better result. Um, and there's a lot of snake oil going around, as you would see and others would see, and, you know, um, the old EAP card's always been a nice, easy solution for organisations, but we start to talk about primary, secondary and tertiary prevention models. Um, the whole intention of the new legislation and the new space is really do more in the primary space and less in the tertiary space. So, um, yeah, and I think good HR practitioners are also uh, trying to get their heads around what all this means for, you know, HR practice because... Let's face it, we've seen lots of people harmed by a good HR um, process if it's on the on the point uh, when there's, you know, bad to be fixed and things like that. So I think we need to look at all the inputting factors for organisations and really just take everyone back to that clean sheet of paper and say, all right, we're trying to prevent harm here. Um, we are also trying to implement code of conduct and all the other things that go on. But 
how are we actually going to look at our systemic approach to make sure that these hazards don't cause harm? And uh, that's the adult conversation. I think if you've got senior leaders that are willing to have that conversation, you're probably lucky uh, because it's quite confronting. And, uh, you know, a lot of bad news probably has to be unpacked before people can really start to look at how that harm can be reduced effectively. So uh, we're all in this together is uh, how I think we need to look at it and uh, really try and make sure that we ensure that this is done in a way that it's not uh, prescriptively approached because in reality it, it's about each individual person and the work that they do in the place that they do it. So if we look at it from that triangular approach, you know, um, the worker comes to work in a hole every day. So um, the place that they work is quite crucial and obviously the work that they do is quite crucial. So if we don't balance out those three factors, we're never going to find the answer. Excellent. Excellent. Peter Gould, thanks very much for being on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure and I look forward to speaking to you again soon. Thank you, Tom. Great to connect with you and uh, great to share some thoughts with uh, all of your podcast listeners. So. Thanks for listening to Health and Safety Conversations with Tom Bourne. Until next time, stay safe and enjoy the rest of your week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Summer's just around the corner, so give your body the care it deserves with Osea's best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Created by infusing Andaria seaweed in barrels of botanical oils, it leaves skin silky soft and glowing. Plus, it's clinically proven to improve elasticity and deeply moisturize without feeling greasy. It's safe, clean, vegan skincare. Get 10% off your first order at oseamalibu.com with code GLOW, plus free shipping on orders over $60.